Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. On this episode, we'll discuss Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans. What are they? How might they be abused by corporate executives? And what reforms of the rule should investors be advocating for? Our special guest is Daniel J. Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Taylor is the co-author of a recent research paper entitled Gaming the System, Three Red Flags of Potential 10b-5-1 Abuse. The paper presents new evidence on the trading behavior of corporate executives using Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans, describes three red flags associated with potential abuses of the rule, and proposes reforms to address those abuses. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us about your new paper. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's, uh, it's a privilege, uh, privilege to be here and uh, get an opportunity to talk to your listeners. Professor, what is a Rule 10b-5-1 trading plan? Why are they so popular with corporate executives? And, and what prompted you and your colleagues to write a research paper on those plans? Uh, great questions. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, so let me uh, let me start with the with the what the heck is a 10b-5-1 trading plan in the first place? Um, so federal securities laws uh, prohibit corporate insiders from trading company securities uh, while they have material non-public information, uh, otherwise known as MNPI. But the issue is is that executives, CEOs, uh, C-suite, you know, uh, vice president of sales, other executives are regularly exposed to MNPI during their duties uh, as, as a, you know, by virtue of simply um, their employment. And so that makes it difficult for them to potentially uh, sell the stock and avoid um, allegations of insider trading. So those who wish to sell a portion of their holdings to diversify their personal wealth are potentially at risk of violating insider trading laws, you know, if they trade you know, through the general course of their duties, potentially. So the SEC uh, adopted Rule 10b-5-1, which outlines procedures that, if followed, uh, provide an affirmative defense against allegations of illegal insider trading. And so to qualify for protection under Rule 10b-5-1, the executives uh, enter into a non-binding contract uh, that instructs a third party to execute trades on their behalf according to a written plan. And, and that's what's known as a, a 10b-5-1 plan. So it is effectively a plan or a schedule of trades at certain dates, certain prices, certain triggers um, committed to in advance that will then sort of execute, uh, execute on its own. Now, the plan has to be adopted at a time when the executive is not aware of material non-public information and basically, it then just goes along and, and executes the, the instructions or the schedule uh, of trades that are part of the plan. Once the plan is in place, it can be modified so long as the executive is not aware of material non-public information at the time of the modification. Interestingly, the plan and its associated trades can be canceled at any time, regardless of whether the executive has possession of material non-public information. So this is a particularly troubling aspect of Rule 10b-5-1 because it allows for cancellation of a trade based on material non-public information. 
So let's, let's give a, a hypothetical here. So imagine you're a pharmaceutical executive and you possess no material non-public information. Okay, you don't, don't have any uh, material non-public information at the time. You could set up a plan to sell shares before drug trial results are scheduled to be publicly disclosed. Now, you don't know what the results are gonna be. You don't know, you don't have anything secret or anything like that. But you could set up a plan to sell shares a few days before you're planning to announce whatever the trial results are. Now, consider the best case scenario uh, that you as the executive learn material non-public information that the drug trial is likely to be successful then what you can do is cancel your planned sale in advance of the trial's disclosure and then postpone it until after the positive trial results are publicly disclosed when prices are higher. So that'll give you the opportunity to sell at the higher price after the disclosure. Alternatively, consider the worst case scenario where the executive learns material non-public information that the drug trial is unlikely to be successful. Well, in that case, he or she can simply let the planned sale execute at the inflated price prior to the disclosure of the negative trial result. In either scenario, the executive is protected on the downside and is able to sell at the most advantageous price. And in no cases would that run afoul of Rule 10b-5-1 because the plan was adopted while they did not have material non-public information and it was solely the act of the cancellation um, that generated that advantage. But Rule 10b-5-1 allows for cancellations based on material non-public information, at least based on uh, current SEC current SEC guidance. So that's that's that kind of gives you the the sense that there you know there might be something going on. There's a potential for abuse there. Um, and so that that got our that got us thinking about you know let's let's examine these plans. Um, and, and see if, you know, see, see what's going on. So we started to dig, we started to dig into these plans and to see if we could get data on them. And it turns out that when officers and directors trade, they have to file form four with the SEC, but there's no current mandatory disclosure rule for whether the transactions are related to a 10B51 plan and no mandatory disclosure about the plans themselves. So when there's a trade according to a plan, the executives don't have to tell you. When they sign a plan, the executives don't have to tell you. Okay, so there's no mandatory disclosure at all about 10B51 plans. So this is where things get weird. And this is what sort of made us think that this would be a really important research paper to write. So there is a form 144 that we had never heard of before we started this research. And form 144 has to be filed when an insider sells 50,000 or more of restricted securities, restricted securities being like founder shares. Form 144 requires that the filer list the date the 10B51 plan was adopted. So if you're going to sell over 50,000 shares of restricted securities and you're using a 10B51 plan to do so, you have to disclose that and you have to disclose the date that it was adopted on this Form 144. Well, it turns out that over, over 30,000 Form 144s have been filed with the SEC each year for the past three years. So 90,000 forms in all. Do you know how many are filed on Edgar? Less than 1%. Say, what? This is the exact reaction that we had. 
how can there be 90,000 Form 144s filed and only 1% of them show up on EDGAR? Well, it turns out that the SEC is still accepting paper filings for Form 144. So the filer submits a paper Form 144 to the SEC. The SEC opens the envelope, stores that paper 144 in the SEC reading room, and then throws them out after 90 days. It does not digitize the form, nor does it post the Form 144 to Edgar. All right. And filers could choose to file electronically, but they're choosing to file by mail. So the market generally doesn't observe these 10 v 51 trades, nor does it observe the plans, nor does it observe these 144s, which are filed by mail, shockingly, even though it's 2021. So the notion that this disclosure regime or this transparency is so opaque, plus the poorly designed rule, we were thinking, you know, this really creates a lot of questions and potentially is, is a setting that's, that's ripe for abuse because you don't have disclosure and the rule is poorly designed. Right. And so what, what's so fascinating about the setting is that, you know, your listeners might remember that 10B51 plans were in news a few months ago with, with Pfizer and Moderna and Novavax and others. And they have been a perennial favorite for congressional oversight committees. You know, there's lots of um, uh, lawyers and law firms giving uh, claiming to provide best practices around these plans. But because of the aforementioned data issues, these paper 144s, no one has done a large-scale study of these plans, not Congress, not law firms, not the SEC, not academics. So, you know, we, I like a challenge, so we signed up for a challenge, and we found a data provider. Uh, shout out to the Washington Service, who's our data provider. And the Washington Service was sending someone to the SEC reading room every day to take scanned images of these paper 144s and digitizing them and compiling a database. Now, really the SEC should be doing that and posting it to Edgar, but they aren't. So based on the digitized scans of the 144s, we were able to compile data painstakingly for 20,000 10B51 plans and associated trades. Once we had that data, we looked at different attributes of plans, cooling off periods, and whether the plan trades uh, systematically avoided losses. And if plan trades systematically avoid losses, then we say that the plan is, is, is opportunistic. So I know that that was a long answer, but it's, to be honest with you, it's, it's still unbelievable, to be honest with you, even looking back at the stuff that we had to go through and, and the disclosure rules around these 10 v 51 plans. So Professor, could you explain the three red flags that you and your colleagues identified in your research as potential abuses of Rule 10b-5-1 plans and your proposed reforms to prevent those abuses? Yes. So, you know, what, what we found sort of, sort of surprised us, I would say, in the data. So your listeners might remember back in December, uh, prior to stepping down, uh, former SEC Chairman Clayton uh, called for plans to require a six-month period between when the plan was adopted and when the plan started trading. And that's known as the cooling off period. It turns out, however, that in our analysis, we found that 82% of plans violate that recommended six month cooling off period, 82%. 14% of plans actually start trading within 30 days of when the plan is adopted. Uh, the trades of those 30 day plans are about 50% larger 
and future stock prices declined by 2.5% relative to industry peers after the plan starts trading. Whereas when the cooling off period is longer, 90 days and beyond, there's no evidence uh, that trades occur systematically before stock price declines. So our first red flag is a short triggered or short cooling off plan where the, the trade occurs within 30 or 60 days after the plan is adopted. So that's our first red flag based on the ability to anticipate losses. Second, we found that 49% of plans cover a single trade. So it's, it's a plan, but it's a plan only to execute a single trade. And the average trade size of these single trade plans is about twice that of multiple trade plans. So these trades under the single trade plans are much larger. In addition, they are much more opportunistic. The trades of the single trade plans that are twice as large and that have a cooling off period of less than 60 days, they're associated with a stock price decline of 4.4% relative to the industry. So you observe a 10 v 501 trade, it's associated with it's a single trade plan, meaning that's the only trade for that plan. And it executed within 30 or 60 days of the plan adoption. On average, its stock prices are going to decline by 4.4% over the next few days. Finally, our third flag was we found that just over a third of plans are adopted during a given quarter and begin trading before that quarter's earnings announcement. So for example, uh, you could adopt the plan 30, uh, excuse me, 60 days into the quarter. So you're day 60 into the quarter. And the plan that you adopted right then would start trading five days before that quarter's earnings announcement inside the earnings blackout window. So in my, in my opinion, this is egregious, right? What we found is, is that it appears that at a series of major corporations, general counsels are allowing executives to adopt a 10B51 plan during the quarter. And then the trades of that plan are allowed to slip in during that quarter's earnings blackout window. And those trades that do that, plans that are adopted during the quarter that execute trades within that quarter's earnings blackout window are associated with future stock price declines of 3% relative to industry peers. So those are our, our, three, our three red flags, short cooling off period, single trade plan, and uh, pre-announcement adopt and trade. So before getting to recommended fixes, you know, let's, let's think about what 10B51 was intended to do, right? It was designed for pre-planned, regularly scheduled trades. So an executive has a need to diversify. And so they would set a plan to basically execute a series of trades. But in what sense is a trade pre-planned if they occur on the same day the plan is adopted? You know, there's over 200 some plans we find that immediately execute trades as soon as they're adopted. In what sense are those pre-planned? In what sense are the trades regularly scheduled if the plan only covers a single trade? 
right? A plan that covers a single large trade is economically no different from a limit order with a price or a date trigger. And, and I don't think the commission intended all limit orders to qualify for an affirmative defense under 10b-5-1. So I think there's a lot of problems here. I don't quite think that, you know, even, you know, there are certainly some skeptical members of 10b-5-1 in, in Congress and on the SEC, and I don't quite think even they understand the, the level of abuse that's going on. And part of that's because the data is really hard to get, and it's very, very opaque. And no one's done a large sample study like this. So the two simple fixes that we recommend are going to be to take a page from former Chair Clayton and impose a four to six month cooling off period between when the plan is adopted and when trading can start. What that means is that if the plan is adopted this quarter, it can't start trading until next quarter. So that's going to eliminate both the short cooling off plans and the uh, pre-announcement plans. We also suggest that the commission disallow single trade plans. So if you're going to qualify for the affirmative defense, it can't be a single trade. It has to be multiple trades spread out over time. And I also want to emphasize here, this does not require congressional action. This is entirely within the purview of the SEC. So you don't need to necessarily get a bipartisan agreement in the House and the Senate. This is entirely within the purview of the, uh, of the commissioners to sort of adopt these, these interpretations and these changes to Rule 10 b one So Professor, back in December of 2012, the CII submitted a rulemaking petition to the Securities and Exchange Commission requesting that the commission consider pursuing amendments to Rule 10 b one that would require plans to adopt uh, the following four uh, protocols and guidelines. Number one, that companies and company insiders should only be permitted to adopt Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans when they are permitted to buy or sell securities during company-adopted trading windows. Number two, companies and company insiders should be prohibited from adopting multiple overlapping Rule 10b-5-1 plans. Number three, Rule 10b-5-1 plans should be subject to a mandatory delay preferably of three months or more before, between the adoption of a Rule 10b-5-1 plan and the execution of the first trade pursuant to the plan. And number four, companies and company insiders should not be allowed to make frequent modifications or cancellations of Rule 10b-5-1 plans. So while the SEC has yet to propose amendments in response to our petition, the petition was the basis for a bill that passed the U.S. House of Representatives in the last Congress by a vote of 413 to 3, but then installed in the U.S. Senate. What's your reaction to CII's 2012 rulemaking petition? And if you're the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, you mentioned two reforms. What other reforms or actions might you take uh, with respect to Rule 10b-5-1. Mm, okay. So, you know, you mentioned a, a few of the, the four points uh, in the rulemaking, uh, rulemaking petition that CII submitted. And, you know, just to, go th- just to go through them individually, you know, the first one that companies and insiders are only permitted to adopt 10b-5-1 trading plans when they're permitted to buy and sell securities during, uh, you know, open trading windows. I, I entirely agree. Uh, it, it's 
frustrating to me that that actually has to be put on paper. You know, you would think that general counsels would be vigilant enough not to allow insiders to set up 10B51 plans during um, trading blackout windows. But having analyzed more than 20,000 10B51 plans, I can tell you with absolute certainty that there are a fair number of companies, many of which are very large, Fortune 500 companies, where they do allow, or at least it happened, that insiders in fact set up 10B51 plans during earnings blackout windows, say, you know, less than 30 days before an earnings announcement. Um, you know, on, on the second point uh, that they should be prohibited from adopting multiple overlapping rule 10B51 plans, this is where I'd like to hedge a little bit here because one could imagine uh, if the stock price really took off or if something happened in the insider's life that they needed some additional liquidity, you know, we want them to still be able to, to still be able to sell. Um, so, you know, we, in the data, we haven't really seen any evidence of, of opportunism with respect to overlapping 10B51 plans. Um, so, you know, I, I would support that, but I would say that the, the evidence-based policymaking there isn't, isn't quite as strong. The other two points, you know, 10B51 plans should be subject to a mandatory delay, preferably three months or more. And, uh, you know, that's the cooling off period. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Like our, our data suggested that if you restrict that to three months, four months, six months, most of the opportunism that we document would disappear. So point three, I would actually, you know, if we're talking about in order of priorities, I would make point three mandatory cooling off period. That would be first priority. And then companies insiders should not be allowed to make frequent, your point four, frequent modifications. Um, also agree with that. There's, there's been precedent where the SEC has been able to pierce uh, the affirmative defense um, uh, in the case of at least Countrywide uh, Financial and Angelo Mozilla, um, where he had, was making frequent, um, frequent modifications to his 10B51 plan and, you know, still, still obviously got him in hot water. Um, so, I mean, I generally am, am highly in favor of, of the petition. I would like to actually go further because what we, what I've discussed so far, what you've discussed with the petition hasn't really addressed disclosure. And I'm a big believer that, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant here. We need mandatory disclosure of trades that are 10B51 on form fours. I cannot emphasize this enough. If it's a 10B51 trade on a form four, it doesn't have to be disclosed. So not only do not I see it, the governance professionals don't see it. The SEC itself doesn't see it. It's not like the SEC has a secret database of all form four trades. Even the SEC doesn't see the 10B51 plans or the 10B51 trades that aren't voluntarily disclosed. So I suspect that one of the reasons that we haven't seen any studies done is because you know, it was really difficult to pull this data together and second, because it's voluntary reporting. So not even the SEC knows the full set of 10B51 trades that are out there, which makes it really difficult to actually engage in any meaningful enforcement or any meaningful policing. So beyond disclosure of trades that are 10B51, we also need to see mandatory disclosure of the adoption and modification dates on those form fours. So if I'm, uh, if I'm the incoming chair of the SEC, I'm gonna require on form four, I'm gonna put a checkbox and I'm gonna require that you check that box if it's a 10B51 trade. I'm also gonna put a blank 
and I'm going to require that if that form four has a 10B51 trade, you fill in the 10B51 adoption date or modification date. Finally, the last thing that I think is potentially most important and often overlooked, uh, certainly for your listeners, is we need disclosure on how much the executive has committed to 10B51 plans in the compensation discussion and analysis section uh, uh, of the annual filings. And a good example of this, why this is such a big deal, um, is uh, Les Moonves from CBS. So he had over 150 million, virtually all of his holdings, committed to uh, one, a single 10, effectively a single 10B51 plan. It's actually a, a few 10B51 plans, but they were all effectively a single plan. And so if you're thinking, if you're a governance practitioner or you're on the board or you're an institutional investor and you're thinking about voting on CEO compensation and equity grant, it would seem to me like you'd want to know whether the CEO has committed to selling all of their holdings in the company. At, at least to me, if, if I was, you know, if I was on a board or if I was an institutional investor thinking about voting on a plan, I would want to know whether the CEO has already committed to basically cashing out all of their equity holdings. And that would certainly inform my vote on whether I should give them more, more compensation and more equity holdings. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Daniel J. Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.